Chapter thirty seven of David Copperfield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. Chapter thirty seven. A little cold water. My new life had lasted for more than a week, and I was stronger than ever in those tremendous practical resolutions that I felt the crisis required. I continued to walk extremely fast, and to have a general idea that I was getting on. I made it a rule to take as much out of myself as I possibly could, in my way of doing everything to which I applied my energies. I made a perfect victim of myself. I even entertained some idea of putting myself on a vegetable diet, vaguely conceiving that, in becoming a graminivorous animal, I should sacrifice to Dora. As yet, little Dora was quite unconscious of my desperate firmness, otherwise than as my letters darkly shadowed it forth. But another Saturday came, and on that Saturday evening she was to be at Miss Mills's, and when Mr. Mills had gone to his whist club, telegraphed to me in the street by a birdcage in the drawing-room middle window, I was to go there to tea. By this time we were quite settled down in Buckingham Street, where Mr. Dick continued his copying in a state of absolute felicity. My aunt had obtained a signal victory over Mrs. Crupp by paying her off, throwing the first pitcher she planted on the stairs out of window, and protecting in person, up and down the staircase, a supernumerary whom she engaged from the outer world. These vigorous measures struck such a terror to the breast of Mrs. Crupp that she subsided into her own kitchen under the impression that my aunt was mad. My aunt, being supremely indifferent to Mrs. Crupp's opinion and everybody else's, and rather favouring than discouraging the idea, Mrs. Crupp, of late the bold, became within a few days so faint-hearted that rather than encounter my aunt upon the staircase she would endeavour to hide her portly form behind doors, leaving visible, however, a wide margin of flannel petticoat, or would shrink into dark corners. This gave my aunt such unspeakable satisfaction that I believe she took a delight in prowling up and down, with her bonnet insanely perched on the top of her head, at times when Mrs. Crupp was likely to be in the way. My aunt, being uncommonly neat and ingenious, made so many little improvements in our domestic arrangements that I seemed to be richer instead of poorer. Among the rest she converted the pantry into a dressing-room for me, and purchased and embellished a bedstead for my occupation, which looked as like a bookcase in the daytime as a bedstead could. I was the object of her constant solicitude, and my poor mother herself could not have loved me better, or studied more how to make me happy. Peggotty had considered herself highly privileged in being allowed to participate in these labours, and although she still retained something of her old sentiment of awe in reference to my aunt, had received so many marks of encouragement and confidence that they were the best friends possible. But the time had now come, I am speaking of the Saturday when I was to take tea at Miss Mills's, when it was necessary for her to return home and enter on the discharge of the duty she had undertaken on behalf of Ham. "'So good-bye, Barkis,' said my aunt, "'and take care of yourself. I am sure I never thought I could be sorry to lose you.' I took Peggotty to the coach-office and saw her off. She cried at parting, and confided her brother to my friendship, as Ham had done. We had heard nothing of him since he went away that sunny afternoon. "'And now, my own dear Davy,' said Peggotty, "'if while you're apprentice you should want any money to spend, or if while you're out of your time, my dear, you should want any to set you up, and you must do one or the other, or both, my darling, who has such a good right to ask leave to lend it to you as my sweet girl's own old stupid me?' 
I was not so savagely independent as to say anything in reply, but that if I ever borrowed money of anyone, I would borrow it of her. Next to accepting a large sum on the spot, I believe this gave Peggotty more comfort than anything I could have done. "'And, my dear,' whispered Peggotty, "'tell the pretty little angel that I should have so liked to see her, only for a minute, and tell her that before she marries my boy I'll come and make your house so beautiful for you, if you let me.' I declared that nobody else should touch it, and this gave Peggotty such a delight that she went away in good spirits. I fatigued myself as much as I possibly could in commons all day, by a variety of devices, and at the appointed time in the evening repaired to Mr. Mills's street. Mr. Mills, who was a terrible fellow to fall asleep after dinner, had not yet gone out, and there was no birdcage in the middle window. He kept me waiting so long that I fervently hoped the club would fine him for being late. At last he came out, and then I saw my own Dora hang up the bird-cage and peep into the balcony to look for me, and run in again when she saw I was there, while Jip remained behind to bark injuriously at an immense butcher's dog in the street, who could have taken him like a pill. Dora came to the drawing-room door to meet me, and Jip came scrambling out, tumbling over his own growls under the impression that I was a bandit, and we all three went in, as happy and loving as could be. I soon carried desolation into the bosom of our joys, not that I meant to do it, but that I was so full of the subject, by asking Dora, without the smallest preparation, if she could love a beggar. My pretty little startled Dora! Her only association with the word was a yellow face and a nightcap, or a pair of crutches, or a wooden leg, or a dog with a decanter stand in his mouth, or something of that kind, and she stared at me with a most delightful wonder. "'How can you ask me anything so foolish?' pouted Dora. "'Love a beggar!' "'Dora, my own dearest,' said I, "'I am a beggar.' "'How can you be such a silly thing?' replied Dora, slapping my hand. "'As to sit there telling such stories, I'll make Jip bite you.' Her childish way was the most delicious way in the world to me, but it was necessary to be explicit, and I solemnly repeated, "'Dora, my own life, I am your ruined David.' "'I declare I'll make Jip bite you,' said Dora, shaking her curls, "'if you are so ridiculous.' But I looked so serious that Dora left off shaking her curls, and laid her trembling little hand upon my shoulder, and first looked scared and anxious, then began to cry. That was dreadful. I fell upon my knees before the sofa, caressing her and imploring her not to rend my heart. But for some time poor little Dora did nothing but exclaim, "'Oh, dear! Oh, dear! And, oh, she was so frightened! And where was Julia Mills? And, oh, take her to Julia Mills, and go away, please, until I was almost beside myself!' At last, after an agony of supplication and protestation, I got Dora to look at me with a horrified expression of face, which I gradually soothed until it was only loving, and her soft, pretty cheek was lying against mine. Then I told her, with my arms clasped round her, how I loved her so dearly and so dearly how i felt it right to offer to release her from her engagement because now i was poor how i never could bear it or recover it if i lost her how i had no fears of poverty if she had none my arm being nerved and my heart inspired by her how i was already working with a courage such as none but lovers knew how i had begun to be practical and look into the future how a crust well earned was sweeter far than a feast inherited and much more to the same purpose which i delivered in a burst of passionate eloquence quite surprising to myself though i had been thinking about it day and night ever since my aunt had astonished me is your heart still mine dear dora said i rapturously for i knew by her clinging to me that it was 
oh yes cried dora oh yes it's all yours oh don't be dreadful i dreadful to dora don't talk about being poor and working hard said dora nestling closer to me oh don't don't my dearest love said i the crust well earned yes yes but i don't want to hear any more about crusts said dora and jip must have a mutton chop every day at twelve or he'll die i was charmed with her childish winning way i fondly explained to dora that jip would have his mutton chop with his accustomed regularity i drew a picture of our frugal home made independent by my labour sketching in the little house i had seen at highgate and my aunt in her room upstairs i am not dreadful now dora said i tenderly oh no no cried dora but i hope your aunt will keep in her own room a good deal and i hope she is not a scolding old thing if it were possible for me to love dora more than ever i am sure i did but i felt she was a little impracticable it damped my new-born ardour to find that ardour so difficult of communication to her i made another trial when she was quite herself again and was curling jip's ears as he lay upon her lap i became grave and said my own may i mention something oh please don't be practical said dora coaxingly because it frightens me so sweetheart i returned there is nothing to alarm you in all this i want you to think of it quite differently i want to make it nerve you and inspire you dora oh but that's so shocking cried dora my love no perseverance and strength of character will enable us to bear much worse things but i haven't got any strength at all said dora shaking her curls have i jip oh do kiss jip and be agreeable it was impossible to resist kissing jip when she held him up to me for that purpose putting her own bright rosy little mouth into kissing form as she directed the operation which she insisted should be performed symmetrically on the centre of his nose i did as she bade me rewarding myself afterwards for my obedience and she charmed me out of my own graver character for i don't know how long but dora my beloved said i at last resuming it i was going to mention something the judge of the prerogative court might have fallen in love with her to see her fold her little hands and hold them up begging and praying me not to be dreadful any more indeed i am not going to be my darling i assured her but dora my love if you will sometimes think not despondingly you know far from that but if you will sometimes think just to encourage yourself that you are engaged to a poor man don't don't pray don't cried dora it's so very dreadful my soul not at all said i cheerfully if you will sometimes think of that and look about now and then at your papa's housekeeping and endeavour to acquire a little habit of accounts for instance poor little dora received this suggestion with something that was half a sob and half a scream it would be so useful to us afterwards i went on and if you would promise me to read a little a little cookery book that i would send you it would be so excellent for both of us for our path in life my dora said i warming with the subject is stony and rugged now and it rests with us to smooth it we must fight our way onward we must be brave there are obstacles to be met and we must meet and crush them i was going on at a great rate with a clenched hand and a most enthusiastic countenance but it was quite unnecessary to proceed i had said enough i had done it again oh she was so frightened oh where was julia mills oh take her to julia mills and go away please so that in short i was quite distracted and raved about the drawing-room 
I thought I had killed her this time. I sprinkled water on her face. I went down on my knees. I plucked at my hair. I denounced myself as a remorseless brute and a ruthless beast. I implored her forgiveness. I besought her to look up. I ravaged Miss Mills's workbox for a smelling bottle, and in my agony of mind applied an ivory needle-case instead, and dropped all the needles over Dora. I shook my fists at Jip, who was as frantic as myself. I did every wild extravagance that could be done, and was a long way beyond the end of my wits when Miss Mills came into the room. "'Who has done this?' exclaimed Miss Mills, succouring her friend. I replied, "'I, Miss Mills, I have done it. Behold the destroyer,' or words to that effect, and hid my face from the light in the sofa-cushion. At first Miss Mills thought it was a quarrel, and that we were verging on the desert of Sahara, but she soon found out how matters stood, for my dear affectionate little Dora, embracing her, began exclaiming that I was a poor labourer, and then cried for me and embraced me, and asked me would I let her give me all her money to keep, and then fell on Miss Mills's neck sobbing as if her tender heart were broken. Miss Mills must have been born to be a blessing to us. She ascertained from me in a few words what it was all about, comforted Dora, and gradually convinced her that I was not a labourer. From my manner of stating the case I believe Dora concluded I was a navigator, and went balancing myself up and down a plank all day with a wheelbarrow, and so brought us together in peace. When we were quite composed, and Dora had gone upstairs to put some rose-water to her eyes, Miss Mills rang for tea. In the ensuing interval I told Miss Mills that she was ever more my friend, and that my heart must cease to vibrate ere I could forget her sympathy. I then expounded to Miss Mills what I had endeavoured, so very unsuccessfully, to expound to Dora. Miss Mills replied, on general principles, that the cottage of content was better than the palace of cold splendour, and that where love was, all was. I said to Miss Mills that this was very true, and who should know it better than I, who loved Dora with a love that never mortal had experienced yet? But on Miss Mills observing with despondency that it were well indeed for some hearts if this were so, I explained that I begged leave to restrict the observation to mortals of the masculine gender. I then put it to Miss Mills to say whether she considered that there was or was not any practical merit in the suggestion I had been anxious to make concerning the accounts, the housekeeping and the cookery book. Miss Mills, after some consideration, thus replied, "'Mr. Copperfield, I will be plain with you. Mental suffering and trial supply in some natures the place of years, and I will be as plain with you as if I were a lady abbess. No, the suggestion is not appropriate to our Dora. Our dearest Dora is a favourite child of nature. She is a thing of light and airiness and joy. I am free to confess that if it could be done it might be well, but—and Miss Mills shook her head. I was encouraged by this closing admission on the part of Miss Mills to ask her whether, for Dora's sake, if she had any opportunity of luring her attention to such preparations for an earnest life, she would avail herself of it. Miss Mills replied in the affirmative so readily that I further asked her if she would take charge of the cookery book, and if ever she could insinuate it upon Dora's acceptance, without frightening her, undertake to do me that crowning service. Miss Mills accepted this trust too, but was not sanguine. And Dora returned, looking such a lovely little creature, that I really doubted whether she ought to be troubled with anything so ordinary. And she loved me so much, and was so captivating, particularly when she made Jip stand on his hind legs for toast, and when she pretended to hold that nose of his against the hot teapot for punishment because he wouldn't, that I felt like a sort of monster who had got into a fairy's bower when I thought of having frightened her, and made her cry. 
After tea we had the guitar, and Dora sang those same dear old French songs about the impossibility of ever on any account leaving off dancing, la va la, la va la, until I felt a much greater monster than before. We had only one check to our pleasure, and that happened a little while before I took my leave, when Miss Mills, chancing to make some allusion to tomorrow morning, I unluckily let out that, being obliged to exert myself now, I got up at five o'clock. Whether Dora had any idea that I was a private watchman, I am unable to say, but it made a great impression on her, and she neither played nor sang any more. It was still on her mind when I bade her adieu, and she said to me, in her pretty coaxing way, as if I were a doll I used to think, now don't get up at five o'clock you naughty boy it's so nonsensical my love said i i have work to do but don't do it returned dora why should you it was impossible to say to that sweet little surprised face otherwise than lightly and playfully that we must work to live oh how ridiculous cried dora how should we live without it dora said i how anyhow said dora she seemed to think that she had quite settled the question, and gave me such a triumphant little kiss, direct from her innocent heart, that I would hardly have put her out of conceit with her answer for a fortune. Well, I loved her, and I went on loving her most absorbingly, entirely, and completely. But going on, too, working pretty hard, and busily keeping red-hot all the irons I now had in the fire, I would sit sometimes of a night opposite my aunt, thinking how I had frightened Dora that time, and how I could best make my way with a guitar-case through the forest of difficulty, until I used to fancy that my head was turning quite grey. End of chapter 37